This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The Independent Commission tasked with overhauling the state's U.S. House districts has approved a new map. We'll explore the potential impact on today's show. And we look at how wildfire activity made worse by climate change is impacting our air quality. I would suspect that when you average things over each decade, we will probably continue to see it get worse. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The state's Independent Redistricting Commission has approved a new congressional map. After seven rounds of voting and six hours of debate Tuesday night, commissioners came to an agreement just before midnight on where to fit Colorado's new 8th congressional district, stretching from Greeley to the northern edge of Denver. Colorado was awarded an 8th district due to an estimated 14.8% growth in population since 2010. And while the 8th district is expected to be a competitive one, the new map gives comfortable advantages to six of Colorado's seven incumbent members of Congress. Now that the committee has approved the map, it's being sent to the state Supreme Court where it awaits final approval. KUNC's state capitol reporter Scott Franz joins us now to talk more about the map and its projected impact. Scott, I know it was a late night. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, my pleasure. I've, I've had some coffee and I'm finally awake. <laughs> Good. Now, for those who haven't been keeping up, tell us briefly about the work of this commission. Right. Well, it's been a very long journey. For the last six months, uh, this group has been doing this really tough job of redrawing the state's congressional districts. Um, These boundaries only get updated once a decade. And this year was really important because of this 8th district um, that we now have a better idea of where it's going. Um, And of course, this process, because politics are involved, tends to be controversial. It attracts a lot of public attention and scrutiny. because so much is at stake, you know, including which parties are favored to win certain House seats. Um, so to catch people up, they've reviewed dozens of maps, they've toured the state, gotten all the feedback, but they've also endured their share of controversies. You know, you might remember things got off to a rocky start uh, when the chair of this group was actually removed from his leadership role um, because of political posts he was making on social media. Uh, fast forward to today, and and we finally have a map that, that is getting sent to the state Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, and you're absolutely right. It has been a very long process, a very long journey. And of course, this is the first time that an independent redistricting committee has been involved in the process. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, can you tell us a bit about this committee, who's part of it, and how it came into existence? Well, this was created thanks to Colorado voters who overwhelmingly approved a ballot question three years ago, taking the process out of the state capitol where things are more prone to uh, political maneuvering and influences, partisan bickering. The idea was ultimately to create a balanced group uh, who could represent the state both geographically but also in terms of race and ethnicity. And it's pretty diverse in terms of age, gender, and professional background as well. For example, you know, this commission ranges from Martha Coleman, a Fort Collins Democrat and geographer who has made maps for the U.S. Forest Service. Jason Kelly is an attorney for Alamosa County. And Lori Schell is an unaffiliated economist in Durango. After this marathon meeting last night, she reflected on this long journey uh, that the group has been on. Despite the proverbial bunk, in the road that we have shared, I would not have missed it. Together, we have changed the course of congressional redistricting in Colorado and provided an example for the rest of the country. Now, Scott, for anyone who hasn't seen this new map, what does it look like? And aside from adding an 8th district, 
how are they changing other districts? Right. I'm, I'm sure people all around the state are thinking, you know, how is this map going to impact future elections? Um, to start with, it keeps all seven incumbent representatives in their home districts. So Lauren Boebert remains the Republican representative living in the third, and Joe Neguse still lives in the second district. Uh, Democrats and Republicans are each favored to win three seats each under the map, uh, with the last two considered toss-ups that still lean toward Democrats, uh, and that's based on previous election results. Um, some other highlights, you know, if you live in Route County, you're on the verge of being moved to the second congressional district along with Jackson. Uh, that new district would stretch from northwest Colorado all the way over to Boulder. And, and if you live in Greeley, um, my message right now is get ready for some more political ads because if these boundaries are approved, um, this 8th district is set to be the most competitive uh, there will be lots of money being spent on campaigns. Um, and down the road, it, it could impact, you know, the future of who holds the majority in the House. Um, so, of course, that means more mailers, debates and political activity uh, in this district. OK, maybe if you're thinking about a larger mailbox, now is the time. <laughs> exactly. Now, in addition to the population growth we mentioned, Colorado is also seeing demographic changes, uh, particularly with an increasing Hispanic and Latinx population and expanding urbanization. How does the new map take these factors into account? This new 8th district has almost 40% Hispanic voters, which is the largest number uh, in the state. And this is really a reflection of the recent growth of the state's Latino population. Yadira Caraveo is a Latina state lawmaker and pediatrician from Thornton. Uh, she's already announced she's running for this seat. So what happens next? Uh, now that the proposed map has been approved, it's headed to the state Supreme Court to await final approval. Is there any indication of how they'll decide and any concerns the Supreme Court might have that would prevent them from granting approval of this new map? Well, I'm not quite sure yet how this is going to play out. The Supreme Court has a, a checklist it needs to go through. Uh, that process will start next month. Um, they really need to make sure each district has equal population, um, is, quote, contiguous, keeps cities and counties whole, um, and is politically competitive. So, you know, some of these criteria, there's room for interpretation. And as we've seen with this committee, um, you know, they've had hours of debate over this issue with with some, you know, still having concerns, even though they they voted for this map. So this is obviously a step with enormous political ramifications. And because of that, I wouldn't be surprised if if the Supreme Court has some long discussions about whether to give this map final approval. Um, you know, some people are also wondering, are there going to be any legal challenges for them to consider? And the commission submits the map by Friday and then the Supreme Court has until November 1st. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. And Scott, I have to ask, uh, what was the mood like Tuesday night. As we have mentioned, this has been a months-long process, and it has had more than its share of tense moments. Well, it was a, a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, things kicked off at 6 o'clock. The commissioners were nostalgic. They were um, taking breaks, talking about their workout routines, what their kids were up to. Um, they were upbeat also because, you know, this very long process was finally coming to an end. Uh, but as the votes dragged on and they started to realize it was going to be hard to get that supermajority they needed. Um, that's when the bickering kind of started. I think it was around 10 o'clock when, when things got the most heated. And um, at one point, their legal counsel 
and I had to step in and, and urge them to to keep, quote, cool heads as they uh, took some of the, the final votes. You know, I, I was sitting there having flashbacks of the uh, long government meetings I've covered in Steamboat Springs as a news, as a newspaper reporter, uh, where things get kind of tedious and and personal. Um, but again, uh, you know, but again, this is a government process with lots of with lots at stake. Uh, and in the end, they were able to find an agreement and vote eleven to one to advance the map uh, just minutes before a midnight deadline, which which really cheered everyone up, I think. KUNC's state capitol reporter, Scott Franz. Scott, thank you for staying up late and thank you for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. This week, we've been looking at the legacy of Western sundown towns. These are places that prohibited people of color and other minorities from living there. We started in Colorado with the story of how Chinese immigrants who flocked to the state to find gold in the mid-1800s were treated, and how some residents in Moscow, Idaho, feel about their past. Today, Paul Boger tells us about how sundown laws led to the development of Indian colonies in Nevada that have had a lasting impact on indigenous people. It's a relatively short hike from the abandoned Central Pacific train tunnels to the Petroglyphs overlooking Donner Lake in Northeast California. But it's hot and the trail is steep, so the going is slow for the roughly two dozen kids from the Washoe tribe of Nevada in California. It's the group's annual summer trip to swim in the lake, and the tribe's culture and language resources director, Herman Fillmore, wants the kids to get something more out of it. Fillmore asks a nearby chaperone if they remember the Washoe name for the place. Dosh Da'au. Dosh Stuck in between lakes. You guys say that? Dosh Hearing the name serves as a simple reminder of how Donner Lake, nearby Tahoe, and much of the eastern Sierra have always been home of the Washoe. But it's not where these kids live today. Most live in Nevada communities the government created to separate indigenous people from nearby white towns and settlements. They're similar to reservations, just closer to urban areas. Fillmore says the kids understand the implications. What I've seen a lot with our youth now is that they they are interested in our language and culture in new ways. They are able to kind of see this uh, colonial world that we live in through a new lens. And for many, that brings an understanding that for much of our history, official U.S. policy sought to eliminate indigenous culture. From the federal government's perspective, that's always at the foundation. That's Matt Makeley, a history professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He wrote the book, The Small Shall Be Strong, a history of Lake Tahoe's Washoe Indians. He says when the Washoe were pushed out of their native lands, the tribe was robbed of vital cultural practices, like its annual pine nut harvest or fishing in Lake Tahoe. It is this desire to assimilate and this national kind of to coalesce around the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant identity and hyper-patriotism was very popular, and washers were, were easy targets. Makeley explains that it wasn't just the federal government enacting racist policies. Prior to the First World War, Nevada's Douglas County adopted the ordinance that prohibited Native Americans from being in the towns of Minden or Gardnerville after sunset, at the risk of jail time or worse. In a 1984 interview with the University of Nevada Reno's oral history program, 70-year-old Washoe elder Bernice Alchaberry described her experience with the law. The Indians uh, weren't allowed in town after 6 o'clock. When the whistle blew, you had to be on your way home. If you were caught on the street or anywhere, you got put in jail. Did you ever know anybody who got put in jail? Oh, yes, a whole bunch of them, my father included. 
Alchaberry also detailed systematic discrimination akin to what black people faced in the Jim Crow South. Well, when you went to town, you were just, uh, you weren't allowed different certain places. You couldn't uh, eat in the restaurants, you couldn't, uh, and they had a soda fountain, and uh, you couldn't go in there. You could go in there and, or and order ice cream, but you couldn't sit down at the table and eat it. Douglas County's sundown laws weren't officially repealed until the 1970s, and their legacy is central to a debate still raging today. That's because twice a day in Minden, you hear this sound. The siren wails from behind the town's volunteer fire station and can be heard for miles. Town officials steadfastly assure residents it's a tradition meant to honor first responders and is not related to the sundown ordinance. They've resisted calls to shut it down completely. But for many Washoe living in the area, such as tribal official Daryl Cruz, the siren signals enduring divides. He says the communities are entwined, the kids go to school together, and when the pandemic struck, the tribe opened its health center to all. Well, to me, when I see the resistance from Minden making that change, it's like, what kind of neighbor is that? You know, what kind of neighbors are you guys? This year, Nevada lawmakers passed a law banning sirens from sounding at times once associated with sundown laws. And in an effort to comply with the law and to work with Washoe leaders, the town recently moved the siren to five. It's a move that has satisfied only some. And for Herman Fillmore, the Washoe Culture and Language Resources Director, it underlines the challenges to preserve the tribe's way of life. We have a lot of trauma and loss in our communities. And a lot of the time, what we're still trying to do is piece together that story, piece together that information, bring it forward and create new speakers for the, for the future. Back on the trail, Fillmore says it's important to understand what it means to be an indigenous person in America and Washoe specifically. Our culture, our language are very unique and distinct, and we want our kids to be proud of those things that we were once forced to be ashamed of. That culture may be fragile. Fillmore says there are only about 10 elders left who can still speak Washoe fluently. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Paul Boger. We'll wrap up our series tomorrow with a look at how a racial reckoning is playing out in Loveland, Colorado, as the city grapples with its sundown past and increasingly diverse future. Because they're not that way, because they're not racist, because they don't treat people bad, maybe the attitude tends to be like, it doesn't happen here, that's just not Loveland. Our series, After the Sun Goes Down, was produced in conjunction with the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find and share all of the stories and see photos and a video exploring the broader impacts of sundown towns at KUNC.org sundown. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Despite some gains, Colorado's air quality hasn't improved much over the past 10 years. That's partly because smoke from wildfires has gone up in recent years. It's full of fine particulate matter called PM2.5. And it's not just associated with Colorado fires. It can travel hundreds of miles, causing problems for even healthy people. In conjunction with an investigation by NPR stations in California, KUNC's Michael DeOana looks at how wildfire activity, made worse by climate change, is impacting our air. Hey, 
How are you? Jack, good to meet you. Good to meet you. That's Jack Todd. I meet him in Denver at the beginning of his morning work commute. It's uh, nice and cool out this morning. It's a uh, fall morning, isn't it? I know. <laughs> what a change All from sudden, last week. I know, right? The chilly air is on our minds because we're riding bicycles. We're following bike paths on Todd's three-ish mile trip to downtown. It allows you to see the city in a way that uh, you don't normally see. You know, I see foxes, I see coyotes, I see eagles um, along the trail. and. And those moments are, are really special and, and remind me how thankful I am to be able to have access to this. Todd is director of communication and policy for Bicycle Colorado, an organization that advocates for bike riders statewide. We have been working for almost 30 years now to get more people on bikes. And um, there's so many reasons for that. It's, it's better for our physical health, it's better for our mental health, and it's better for our cities and, and our environment. And so there's so many benefits to biking. Every rider we see represents a car or truck not spewing out pollutants. But vehicles aren't the only problem. We're also dealing with more wildfire smoke. Sometimes it's evident. You can look outside and you see the, the way that the color of the sun and you know something's not right. But how often is air pollution a problem in Colorado? KUNC dug into a decade of federal air quality index data to get a better idea. It's called the AQI for short. Across the state, pollution sensors log days that are green, the best it gets, to purple, which is the very worst. We didn't find a lot of purple days, but there were fewer green days than is ideal. What we found in each of those years is that roughly 25% of the days were yellow, orange, or red, categories where air can start to harm sensitive people all the way to being unhealthy for all of us. Ground-level ozone, a chemical reaction triggered by sunlight and heat that is linked to vehicle exhaust and industry, is an ever-present problem in the AQI. It routinely exceeds federal health standards. But it's declined slightly over the past decade, while another pollutant, PM2.5, has been going up. One snapshot is last year, when record-setting wildfires blazed in Colorado and throughout the West. Sensors logged, on average, 20 days of PM2.5. That's nearly twice as many average days as just 8 to 10 years ago. And in Denver, Boulder, and Weld counties, the impact was much worse, with all three exposed for well over 100 days. With all of this data, I turned to two researchers at Colorado State University who know a lot about the air and how it affects our health. We've been working collaboratively together now for, is it almost seven years, Jeff? Is that right? Um, something like that. That's Jeffrey Pierce, a professor of science, and Cheryl Magsiman, an associate professor of epidemiology. They found pollutants associated with wildfires make people sick. Smoke events increase risk of hospitalizations, especially for respiratory diseases like asthma, but for cardiovascular diseases as well. And we also found that increases in smoke are associated with increases in asthma deaths and cardiac arrest deaths along the front range. PM 2.5 is super small, 2.5 micrometers or less. So it's like probably about a hundredth 
of the width of a human hair is, is the average smoke particle. Meaning it can easily bypass the body's defenses and travel into the lungs, not only interfering with breathing, but potentially causing other problems. PM2.5 has been associated with, birth, with low birth weight, even from, especially from wildfires. There's a really interesting study that showed that. Neurological disease, diabetes, um, end-stage renal failure. So the systemic effect of PM2.5 is really scary. Research on its health impacts, especially long-term, is ongoing. What is more conclusive is climate change science predicting an increase in hotter and drier days across the West, which means more wildfires. Now, it doesn't happen every year, but then, of course, last year and this year, have been really bad. And on average, it, you know, it's, it's increasing. And I would suspect that when you average things over each decade, we will probably continue to see it get worse. An investigation by NPR member stations in California found that eight of the 10 largest wildfires in that state occurred in the past three years. And the smoke can travel thousands of miles, a problem that has grown worse in the last decade, with the number of days Americans are exposed to PM 2.5 rising dramatically. It's a real double whammy, and there's no question our patients notice it. Dr. Anthony Gerber is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver. He says people with chronic health issues like emphysema and bronchitis can benefit from going outdoors. One of the things that does work to improve their quality of life and their longevity of life is actually exercise programs. But when the AQI moves to yellow or worse, orange or red, those patients can be forced to stay indoors. So you take that away, for four to six weeks in the summer, and they might really lose ground. And it's not just those with pre-existing health issues that doctors worry about. Dr. Jesse Johar is the emergency department medical director and chief of staff at Banner McKee Medical Center in Loveland. The people who live close to these fires, the people who are being exposed to the smoke more frequently, may have some long-term health issues that we just don't know yet. So. We're advising everybody to try to protect yourself and take whatever precautions you can if you have to be out on a smoky day. Like wearing an N95 mask or better that filters out fine particulate matter. People shouldn't give up on exercising. It's good for them. And Dr. Johar advises they use apps or check reports to look for the best times to go out and where to go. And if it's a particularly smoky day, she might check the area and say, hey, you know what? It's smoky here, but... Actually, in Greeley, it's not as bad today. Hey, down in Loveland, the air quality is much better. I might go down there and go for my ride. KUNC found a lot of that variability on a county level in the AQI data. Weld County had 136 PM 2.5 days in 2019 and 129 in 2020. And while Boulder County was on par with Weld both years, it still had fewer bad days. And that data doesn't get to a street level in both counties where some areas might have been safe. And it, it, it is tough. It's, you know, I ride every day. And there are days that I, I question whether that's the smartest thing for me to do. As we ride our bikes, I ask Jack Todd what he does on days when the air quality isn't great. You know, I choose to because I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to make the air quality worse by driving. Sometimes he'll wear a mask or ride slower so he doesn't breathe too heavily. But because of that, he feels riding a bicycle is more important than ever for our air quality.
And there's one more thing that's impacting our health. Researchers Jeff Pierce and Cheryl Magsman found that hospitalizations in Colorado, especially for asthma, actually went up at an unusual time. It wasn't when the fires were sending up plumes of smoke here, but instead it was when fires were burning in other states. We actually saw that there was an increase, a significant increase in asthma hospitalizations associated with smoke, increased smoke. And we think part of that could also be that the emergency response was associated with the fire locally, but there is no emergency response here in Colorado because, again, these fires were upwind of our communities. The takeaway, PM 2.5 is still dangerous, even on hazy days when the air doesn't smell smoky. And it could be a more pressing public health issue because those are days when people might not take the precautions they should be. Michael DeOanna. KUNC. We also asked officials with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment about the rise in PM 2.5 levels. They acknowledged the increased wildfire activity and noted that levels have not violated federal standards. And they pointed to efforts to reduce other sources of PM 2.5, such as emissions from coal-fired power plants, saying it has secured closure dates for numerous coal-fired units around the state. That's our show for today. Even before the Federal Food and Drug Administration granted full approval to Pfizer's COVID booster vaccine last week, Governor Polis has been a vocal proponent of the third shot, even encouraging Coloradans who are under the age of 65 to suggest they have a weakened immune system so they can qualify to receive the booster dose under the FDA's current rules. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll check on how the booster shot rollout is progressing in northern Colorado and look at the ongoing strategy to encourage unvaccinated Coloradans to get the jab. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.